From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Juanita Lucille Halsey Starks began telling her granddaughter about Wilmington's 1898 coup d'etat and massacre when Elaine Brown was just a toddler. In case you're new to the narrative, November 10, 1898, a white mob attacked the people of the city of Wilmington. They killed an unknown number of black citizens, forced many more to leave the city, and overthrew the city government. Elaine's grandmother was determined to teach her this history because she probably wasn't going to learn about it anywhere else. The details of Wilmington's bloody coup, perpetrated by white supremacists, wasn't taught in history class or written about in history texts in the late 20th century. Nonetheless, it directly impacted her family, the Halsey family. Joshua Halsey, Juanita's grandfather, Elaine's great-great-grandfather, was shot 14 times and killed that day, leaving his wife Sally a widow. Sally Halsey eventually left Wilmington and eventually wound up in New Jersey. And now, Elaine Brown, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, along with her siblings, are putting together the fragmented stories of their family, and learning about how the massacre has shaped her family history. Elaine Brown teaches history in high school in California. In her personal and artistic life, she calls herself Poet E. Spoken, as poetry is her storytelling medium of choice. In her memoir, Cried Out Laughing, she weaves a tapestry of family stories through both prose and poetry. Today, we'll find out why she sees telling her story as her path to power. She joins me now. Elaine Brown, welcome to Coastline. Thank you for having me. It's just a super honor. I'm honored to be here and tell our story. And we're honored to have you with us. Now, since poetry is your chosen medium, why don't we start with a poem called Inquiring Minds? Sure thing. (laughs) Some people say, Elaine, we love your styles and flows. I mean, your words are uplifting and speak to our soul, but yet we don't know you. I mean, your ability to connect on so many issues, one can only imagine the things that you have been through, and yet we don't know you. They even say things like, Elaine, I'm hoping that you could dig deep and tell my story for me. You see, the pain is too great and hard for me to deal with, but you have been given a gift. This power in your words, because they bring about healing, it's as if you were there, you know exactly what we're feeling, and yet, we don't know you. Well... I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, the youngest child of five, where daddy disappeared sometimes three to four years at a time. So dysfunction became my way of life, and pretending is how I survived, though many nights I thought I would die, having been exposed to domestic violence, drugs, alcohol, and child molesters, abandoned by the one man that I thought would be my protector, so I had nightmares and countless of sleepless nights, because in order for me to survive, I had to fight, so I believed that I have earned the right to be mad and angry as hell and am I ringing any bells but yet you don't know me (laughs) wait see cuz 
Ever since the days of young, my son said, Mom, when I grow up, I want to be just like you now. Most parents would be proud, but I wanted him to break the cycle. So I was down for a minute thinking I didn't set good examples, but I have to understand that he is just entangled in that stage. You know, young, but of age, and I'm so afraid because our babies are dying like plagues, and I want so much to save him, but I know that he needs to find his own way. Now, we still do those occasional hospital trips and late-night stays, overdosing on dad. And that's some real just say no for your ass. And I, I know that I'm crossing someone's path, and yet you don't know me. <laughs> Wait. In a committed relationship for 17 years, and at first there was even passion behind the tears. Now, we both did our fair share of dirt to make each other hurt, and of course, we all go through ups and downs. But somehow we knew that if we could make it through, we would make things better. And ah! Uh, you should have seen us together. I mean, we used to meet each other on solid ground to agree and disagree, but now we only talk in extremes, and I'd have lost my voice behind the screams and watched as my happily ever after turned into pieces of a dream. Now I know there's someone out there that knows what I mean, and yet you don't know me? <laughs> Wait. So I would like to take this time out to give a shout-out and toast to all of my enemies. See, because I, I do believe under different circumstances, we would have been the best of friends. So I admire you for your honesty because you let me know exactly where I stand. And it's kind of ironic because those are the same qualities we look for in our friends. But lately, I've been noticing a trend. See, once you're up, here come all those who pretend they have no vested interest in what happens to you in the end. And if you don't believe me, let them in. Treating you like the latest fad and got their hand out for anything they can grab. They don't want you. <laughs> they want what you have. Start digging up old dirt in your past and Facebook and trash and claiming that, that they got your back but the only thing they're doing is laughing <laughs> and lately that's all I've been attracting so I had to take a step back to do some reflecting and retracting and now I know the difference between who's real and acting I'm even noticing the first ones to run when things go down now come on <laughs> somebody up in here ought to know me by now and if you don't I suggest inquiring minds get to know themselves thank you Poet E. Spoken performing her poem, Inquiring Minds, which is part of her memoir, Cried Out Laughing, Elaine Brown. In that poem, Elaine Brown, you, you also talk, of, there's so much in there, but you talk about people coming to you for what they can get with their hands out. Right. What do you mean like that, by that? And, and what did you have to learn to protect yourself from? Um... Just people pretending to be your friend, but really out for the dirt, out to uh, maybe spy, maybe just do things because they don't, they're not comfortable within themselves, they don't like me, whatever the case is, but just doing uh, hurtful things, being very intentional about using me, using people in general. That's what I mean uh, by that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we're going to talk about all of this stuff, including what you've learned about the history of Joshua and Sally Halsey, but as well as it, how you believe that impacts your own life mm -hmm. and generations that have come after. 
But explain to us what you think happens when we don't talk about our stories. Um, we're we're sidelined. We are forgotten about, and then there are cycles that happen as a result of not getting it out or not talking about it. So those abuses, however the form, repeats and repeats and repeats. At some point in time, we have to normalize conversations of these traumas, of these abuse. And so that means talking about your story. And if I bring out something for people, then at least we get the conversation going. And that's something that you've said to me is you want to normalize being able to talk about some of the areas that right now we consider difficult. And you refer to them often as isms. Yes. What what kind of isms? What do you mean by isms? Um, the racism, you know, this racism, sexism, classism, those, those, those isms, those hidden um, abuses of power, you know, the way uh, people of color, uh, black and brown women, you know, children are the poor working class are marginalized. The way we are framed and put into a box for a narrative while uh, a select few get to have those freedoms and those rights that we we talk all about in constitutions. And there are going to be some people who listen to this and say, well, if you keep harping on the past and harping on the difficulties, you're you're not claiming your own power or taking your own responsibility, but you're saying that you actually find your power through telling your story. Can you talk about kind of the difference there between letting an old story of trauma constrict you versus letting it uh, heal you and allow you to move on in your life? Well, we first need to start with the truth. <laughs> so if the story was constricted and, and, and told uh, with, with lies to cover over, then the story was not told. <laughs> so to speak your truth means to speak your, your, your power. And that's something that is happening now because the story was not told. People don't know my grandfather in uh, history books. <laughs> you know, they don't know our story. They were fed this scripted story to, uh, con- for power and control. So how is that in the past when it's still going on today? <laughs> right. Yeah, that it's not past, and I, I think there's a misconception about what is the past. Yeah, and, and that is exactly what we want to get into here. How does what we're calling the past impact you today? And that's a big question, <laughs> and we're going to go to break. So I'll let you think about that and how you want to answer it. We are going to come back from this break in about 90 seconds. You're listening to Coastline. We're meeting poet E. Spoken today, Elaine Brown, great-great-granddaughter of 1898 murder victim Joshua Halsey. More with Elaine Brown and how the past 
is the present when we come back from this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. How does the past shape the future, and is there a way out of a cycle? We're exploring those questions with Elaine Brown, history teacher and poet, who also happens to be the great-great-granddaughter of Joshua Halsey, murdered in November 1898 during Wilmington, North Carolina's coup d'etat, which was masterminded by a cabal of white supremacists in a city that was not only majority black, but boasted a thriving professional class of black doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, federal appointees. It was an evisceration of a city. So just before we went to break, Elaine Brown, I asked you how the past, specifically Joshua Halsey and Sally Halsey's story, how does that affect you in the present? Well, um, there's this thing called legacies. <laughs> and we will never know what our legacy should have been or could have been in, in shaping Wilmington today um, where, you know, black and brown people here are marginalized and don't have the access. But in terms of leaving uh, Wilmington so that we can gain access other places, we were then marginalized in, you know, what we like to call up south, <laughs> right? And so the cities in the north and stuff like that, where my grandmother, Sally, to just to give you a little background about her, her life, there's a newspaper clipping of my grandmother, um, Sally Halsey, being busted to sh for shoplifting because she had no other means. She was prominent. She knew how to read and write, very educated. Um, and she, when she spoke, she was, you know, she spoke kind of like in syllables. She, her enunciation was just really out of this world. And my grandma talked like that. But what avenue could she go into to teach that, to um, advance and continue to build those legacies for the next generation? She didn't. You know, right. she didn't have those opportunities. Those doors were not open. And um, to these days, those doors are not open open and people are, are thinking you know that uh civil rights equals equity well it, it looks good on um paper right but in 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 theory in practice let's take a look at that and in fact i think we ha are heading backwards <laughs> with these the the, the bills and, and and legislations that have been passed from 
anywhere from anti-abortion to voter suppression. It, it, it's, you know, I don't know what else I could say on that. I mean, it just speaks for itself how we are being pushed back. You talk about Sally Halsey having her her name splashed around the newspaper for shoplifting. Right. And this was after she had become a widow, after her husband, Joshua Halsey, was killed. Yeah. And, of course, uh, Sally and Joshua Halsey didn't wind up in the papers for any other reason. That's the way she was memorialized in the newspaper. Yeah, when... uh when uh, Grandma Sally uh, died in New Jersey, um, you know, there was a little write-up about her and where she died. She was a member of the AME uh, Episcopal uh, Church in New Jersey. And uh, she, you know, uh, it talked about her life. Like, oh, Sally was arrested for shoplifting, you know. It didn't talk about how uh, Sally was born a a slave on a Lovejoy plantation, but taught her kids to read and write. She knew how to read and write. She taught uh, Grandma and Annie and her children to read and write. They both did. And so um, that was to be revered. Was it pretty unusual for slaves on the Lovejoy plantation to be able to read and write, to, to learn that? Uh, at, evidently, Master Lovejoy, or as my grandma liked to say, Moss Lovejoy. Um, he was definitely a different character. Um, it was very um, different. They sat in this room and they used to have class behind this like uh, grandma describes it as a black velvet curtain so nobody could see in to see what they were doing but that he taught them to to read and write um, you know the the house slaves uh, to read and write and stuff like that so we know that that's who she was because uh, uh, she uh, catered to uh, Lovejoy's uh, daughter, who I believe she was blind, and Grandma was her guide, so she often read for her and took care of her and did those things, and she wouldn't have been able to do that had she not been able to read and write. So you got to believe um that grandma and and grandpa, though not rich, they were prominent. They had property, (laughs) you know what I mean? At a time where you you didn't. (laughs) So she's coming out of this plantation then. She was born a slave and lived on the Lovejoy plantation. And when you say Massa Lovejoy, are you talking about the man who owned the plantation? Um, I am talking about the, I guess, Moss Lovejoy's grandma called it was uh, Sally's 
um, owner, if you will. But I think that it was a, a different uh, type of relationship there. Um, more research is still being done on the Lovejoy Plantation. So as that becomes available, I will update you all. <laughs> uh, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so, But this was one of the white men in control. Yes. Who, and he was, but he was still encouraging them to learn to read and write. Yeah, uh, Master Lovejoy, let me put it like Grandma used to say, Master Lovejoy said to the slaves on the Lovejoy plantation that you will not be slaves all your lives. You have got to be prepared, and one day you will thank me for this. Interesting. And so... Grandma Sally taught Annie, um, which is uh, Grandma's oldest sister, (laughs) Wilhelmina. We called her Annie. And they both, I mean, like I said, their enunciation was just out of this world. Like, I couldn't even be in the house saying ain't. Like, if (laughs) I would have started a sentence with... I ain't got none or something like that. Grandma would be on my behind, like, no, say it properly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, she so, was like, speak proper, you know, talk properly. You know how, you know better, you know, stuff like that. Right, right. So eventually, uh, Sally and Joshua meet and marry. Mm-hmm. And Joshua Halsey, according to Maria Kramer of the New York Times, was a laborer and the father of four girls, and he was asleep in bed Mm -hmm. on November 10, 1898, when one of his daughters shook him awake. This is the way Maria Kramer writes it. Mm -hmm. He was deaf and hadn't heard the gunshots fired by the white mob. What, What kind of laborer was Joshua Halsey? What do we know about him? Well, Joshua was... Uh, a hard-working man raising his family, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so he believed in that work ethic, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And, you know, having been deaf also complicated it. Right. But somehow there was an understanding, <laughs> uh, you know, he was definitely not illiterate. And so he was a hard-working man willing to do what he needed to do to, to take care of his family. Um, so. Given that he wasn't uh, particularly... Uh, I, I, actually, I don't know how to say this. He, he was well-liked in the community. Mm-hmm. But what is the theory on why he was chased down and murdered the way he was, shot 14 times. I mean, that is, that's not somebody getting in the way of gunfire. That's, that's people intent on making sure they finish him off. Well, well when you are a prominent citizen, because that's what they were, Grandpa and Grandma uh, Sally understood their rights as citizens. See? And uh, Grandma 
and Grandpa had sued uh, Wilmington for Grandma falling. She fell through the bridge, one of the bridges, I don't know which one, but, you know, and injured herself, and they sued the city and won. Sally Halsey fell through a bridge. Yeah, she fell through a a bridge and injured herself really bad, um, enough that they sued the city and they won. Mm -hmm. So if that's not prominent, (laughs) if that's Mm -hmm. not understanding your rights as a citizen, if that's not leadership, you know, what, what, what is, you know, and people in prominent roles, you didn't necessarily have to be rich. You just had to be prominent and know your rights. So apparently they did know that. And that will always be a danger, right? Right. So you're going to. So he was a target out. because yeah. he was able to navigate the the rules of society in a way he was able to assert his power exactly and whenever you are able to to do that and you are prominent and you are able to organize and get people to come together you are always going to be that target you know you're always going to look be looked at this person and you know as this person of you know, danger, whatever have you. And you've noticed that all throughout history, whenever there has been a person of prominence that can organize and bring people together, they're murdered, right? They're they're assassinated. After he was murdered, he was hastily buried in a nearby cemetery the grave was left unmarked, and you were able to establish where his headstone belonged mm-hmm. after 123 years. And I should say that Third Person Project, a local research nonprofit, right. um, and John Jeremiah Sullivan helped locate the, the grave of Joshua Halsey. That was a big deal for you. Can you talk about the moment that you learned that they'd found his grave? Well, honestly, uh, we've had like a a number of Zooms, you know, it it first got started with uh, my brother, uh, Nathaniel, or Hesketh uh, Nathaniel, and um, uh, doing the uh, ancestry and hooking up with uh, Tim Pinnock and then John and that whole uh, third person project and they and I should just say Tim Pinnock is a, a genealogist who's been volunteering for the new Hanover County Remembrance Project which has also been working on all of this yeah and um, so um, they were uh, doing the work and and it was doing these zooms because we were having a lot of zoom um, conversations and um, John was like uh, yeah we uh, have a special zoom kids you can you would you be able to get on and i'm like well what's going on let's get on this thing you know so we got on zoom and we went through and he he said after careful research yeah we have located 
where your second great grandfather, Joshua, is buried. And I was just in a daze. I, you know, I just felt like somebody was punking me. <laughs> yeah, it just was uh, so surreal. And uh, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, this is totally unreal because now you cannot dispute, <laughs> you know, and um, the other uh, stories, the stories are going to come out. And as uh, people's stories come out about Wilmington, that moment there just sticks in my mind. And I was just on another planet. It was just so unreal that we would have, in a way for our family, closure. And <laughs> What would talk about what it was like when you went to the grave and told them where to put the headstone? Well, um, there was a talk, so a few of us John, uh, Joel, who else? Joel Finzel, John Jeremiah Sullivan, all part of Third Person Project. Yeah, and um, the, the caretaker, I forget his name. I am bad with names, but. Um, you know, the caretaker of Pine uh, Forest Cemetery was out there. And um, we went to the spot where uh, Grandpa was uh, located. And, um, you know, we just had the lights of our phone. So here are these people, there's about five of us out there. We got this shining light on our, our front from our phones. And um, so we went there to the Satira uh, Walker plot. Uh, and we're, we're there. And there's Caleb on one side and uh, Satira and uh, different uh, Halsey family members in this plot there. And uh, I, I, I'm just overwhelmed. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. And um, so I noticed that Joshua wasn't too far from Caleb. And I just thought in my mind where it could be placed. And so John asked me, well, you know, let's have uh, one of the descendants decide that. I don't think that's what us. And so I was there. I was the only one there for my family. And um, so he was like, well, where would you like to put it? And I just, I, I was saying that I would like for him to be facing the same way as Caleb and um, because you know the way that it was uh, placed and situated those two are looking on to the other members <laughs> of the, the, the family and I, I just thought right on and as they were uh, sealing the headstone to the base um um, where it was just 
amazing. And I, I just like, yeah, I felt that. And yeah. You're listening to Coastline. Elaine Brown, poet and history teacher, is my guest today. She's also the great-great-granddaughter of Wilmington coup d'etat victim Joshua Halsey. After this short break, we'll find out how she sees her future and the next generations in the Halsey line and whether she sees reparations as part of that future. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Joshua Halsey was shot from behind 14 times on November 10, 1898. It was the day a white supremacist cabal unleashed its master plan on the flourishing port city of Wilmington, North Carolina, driving elected black leaders out of office, killing an unknown number of people, and driving many more successful black professionals out of the city. Elaine Brown is a poet and history teacher and she is the great-great-granddaughter of murder victim Joshua Halsey. And while she lives in California today, she and her family are reckoning with their family's tragic history and what it means. Elaine Brown, as a poet, you call yourself Poet Mm E-Spoken, you wrote a piece called Joshua's Tree that tells part of that story. Would you perform that for us? Sure. So... Ever since the day that you claimed that our knuckles scraped ground and we walked on all fours, we were still upright, you see. Amendments did not change nor legitimize legacies, so we broke bread like chains to tell our stories. Therefore, silence is foreign tongue, so all the trials, triumphs, and tribulations written in the blood of our ancestors were meant to be told. It is healing for lost souls, see. I myself have strayed far from this path, but voices from the past whispered wisdom. They said Elaine, even visions of even visions hold on. <laughs> Let me re- recap that. <laughs> so ever since the day that you claimed that our knuckles scraped ground and we walked on all fours, we were still upright, you see, amendments did not change nor legitimize legacies, so we broke bread like chains to tell our stories. Therefore, silence is foreign tongue. So all the trials, triumphs, and tribulations written in the blood of our ancestors were meant to be told. It is healing for lost souls. See, I myself had strayed far from this past, but voices from the past whispered wisdom. They said, Elaine, even systems deep-rooted in oppression have vision. They spread the gospel of lies in history books like religion. And though unwritten, our voice has the power to transform and transcend generations when we lift them up. So teach them that 56% of the black race represented Wilmington under the era of Reconstruction did away with our two-party system and created fusion. Words like diversity and inclusion suddenly had a meaning in a port town that brought us over in slave ships, but we fought like hell to control our own interests, open our own businesses, while white supremacists saw this as an act of violence, killed unarmed men, black men, women, and children, burned black establishments. Wow. Wow. I'm getting overwhelmed. (laughs) 
burn black establishments. Hold on. I'm going to go to it. <laughs> Poet, he's been doing yeah. Joshua's oh tree, her poem about Joshua Halsey. Burn black establishment. <laughs> Killed unarmed black men, women, and children, and those who couldn't leave hid in the Pine Cemetery where our ancestors dwell. And it was there that I heard them calling me like music through the conch shells. See, I heard Grandpa Joshua, Grandma Sally, Grandma Betsy, Annie, Grandma Juanita, Cousin Juanita, my daddy, my brother Vernon, Aunt Jean and Aunt Lane, Aunt Loretta, Uncle Sonny, Uncle Earl, and blessed to still be alive, I heard my mama Joan the matriarch yell, tell our stories, tell our stories. That just got really, really real <laughs> for me just now. Talk about that. What just happened? Oh, my God. I'm, like, caught up in that moment with that it's just it could be overwhelming overbearing because I'm like seeing these people just flash before my eyes and it's just like mind-blowing and, and catching that I could be up here doing this so it, it gets a little emotional at times for me to yeah do it. and when you say up here doing this do you mean in Wilmington yes in what is Wilmington that? This is X marks the spot yeah. for, 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 for me. So I get choked up, you know. I have a different view of uh, coming to Wilmington than a lot of people who, who stayed because, you know, I will never know what that outcome could have been for us if, uh, 1898 hadn't happened. You said there, there was kind of a clarifying moment for you when the question, why is my family struggling? Why are we struggling? Really hit you. And mm -hmm. why, why, what was it about that question that m just started you on this path? I mean, a lot of people would just accept that their families struggle. You know, we just, that's how we are. It's, that's how it's been. But you didn't. You suddenly went, that doesn't make sense. It, it, it didn't because I felt like uh, my family should have the recognition that all families who have been through these tragic events, I mean, there have been reparations for many uh, other races in uh, a society without question because it happened. So, you know, <laughs> what, what makes slavery or victims of massacres uh, any different? It happened. It is the way that we sculpt these stories, you know, and, and so that those legacies get changed and we leave it to oppressors to sculpt this narrative that Oh, that's just how it was. And um, while my family and the likes of others struggle, I mean, just to make a decent living, uh, to carve a way for ourselves, it's a struggle. And why is that? 
you know, why are we not afforded the same rights as people who built this country? Let's get real. <laughs> you, you, you know, and we're not afforded the same rights. We are excluded from many major things. And, you know, uh, you got to be some kind of privilege to think that that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> so when you think about that, do you think about reparations? And if so, how do you see that happening? Do you talk about reparations with other people? Yeah, I uh, talk about reparations with other people. I, I think that there needs to be a reckoning of uh, what happened. You know, I mean, this was a, 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 a tragedy, but it was planned. It was well uh, thought out. Um, People were slaughtered. They they were they were murdered. They were slaughtered, thrown in the river. I mean, there are all kind of stories, and our story is just but one, you know. And but we're going back into an era where this town was built, but we were building even more and equity, you know. And uh, di diversity, we talk a lot about that today, but it is all talk. I mean, Wilmington was the case in where this was happening. So you can't tell me it, it can't be done and, you, you know, and why wasn't it? The question is, why wasn't reparations handed out? You know, it, it takes uncovering uh, uncovering people everybody you know people know the truth they know you know what I mean and um, you're gonna you know you gotta live your truth I gotta live my truth so you know um, it, it is it is time to repair that 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 damage and it, you know and apologize we're so hypocritical <laughs> you, you know, we are, was, yeah, we're, we're hypocritical to the point where, you know, it happened. Oh, that's long ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? So what, what it doesn't count, but because it happened long ago, it fortified your position here, you know, mighty fine for you. You know, you have access it was your great aunt Annie who wrote an essay entitled A Black Citizen versus the Statue of Liberty and said, quote, the prevailing element of bigotry and turbulent racial strife churning up in the land that she symbolizes, talking about the Statue of Liberty, makes her stand out as a blaring farce, end mm -hmm. quote. So your great aunt Annie would have been born in the early 20th century Mm -hmm. And then you wrote a poem called Long Distance that kind of expands on that idea from yeah. your great aunt's essay. Yeah, I actually wrote the poem not knowing about this essay. My cousin had found it amongst the papers and stuff like that. And, um, but I had already written this. And I said, well, you know, I must have been channeling Anna, you know, Annie somehow because... Um, 
I was right on the point with some of the stuff that she said in there. And had I read this essay before, I would have done it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> long before. <laughs> but yeah. it just, it just, uh, um, I was taking my niece home and I went past the Statue of Liberty and take a picture, take a picture. I took a picture and it was at night, but it was just outlined by the moon. <laughs> and so it was black outlined by the moon in this water so I wrote long distance um, which yeah. goes liberty you have become a contradiction you see your truth is now fiction and though your words were set in stone you never owned it so I came to unveil and uplift consider this as a gift with the way this world is spinning around your axis got people falling on their axis and you still separate by dividends race and classes democracy is now fascist we wear hate like fashion and with these holy wars going on one would think the devil has more passion so the questions that I'm asking liberty why isn't justice considered righteous? Instead of kings and queens, we taught what come from slavery and three-fifths. One black man in office does not equal progress 800,000 years later, and we're still treated like second classes and to stand up for what we believe in. Hey, blacklist, but we don't matter. So just like the history books, it is time to rewrite this. So let's take a trip across the desert sands. You see, the first modern human was Ethiopian. Yeah, check your strands, because we all come from one. And as one, we shall stand. And if I am my brother's keeper, then who the hell is Isis? Stand up to the faces of ignorance and pump two fists, because liberty is off in the distance, but I still see it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Long Distance yeah. by poet E. Spoken from her memoir, Cried Out Laughing, Elaine Brown. If you could meet your great-great-grandparents, Joshua and Sally Halsey, Elaine Brown, what would you want them to know about you and what would you say to them? I would ask them to tell me a story. <laughs> <laughs> and I would ask if they were proud and if I did them justice. Yeah, that's what I would do. I'm all about the stories. <laughs> yeah, when did you f discover that poetry was a, a critical way for you to express and to tell your own story? Uh, when I was a young girl, um, being the youngest, you're always told, um, be quiet, <laughs> don't be seen, you know, all that, you know, stay in a girl's place, stay in your place, blah, blah, blah. And I had no way of getting it out except writing. And it was just coming out in rhyme, and I really didn't know at the time that that's what it was. And um, so um, because of some of the trauma and things that I've suffered in my life, um, a good friend who is also a therapist, she was like, you, you need to write, write it out, Elaine, write it out. And so I began writing it out. And um, that's been my mode of how I get things out. And one of the things that you actually put out in your book, you talk about sexual abuse by mm -hmm. your uncle. Yep. And how that moment that you actually, you stood up to him. What did you say to him? <laughs> I, I, I simply told him he it, it stops today 
you know, that people look up to him and he should be ashamed of himself, you know, and I know today you're not going to put your hands on me and, you know, he, he cowered, (laughs) you know, and tried to make excuses and I am not one for excuses. So I'm like, no, you know what I mean? This is truth to power. This is how I take it back. So I, I, normalize these conversations you know i'm not one to to back down i'm not one to to cower on these conversations of trauma because uh if you don't speak up or someone doesn't speak up and out you best to believe (laughs) it's going to happen over and over and it was just time to heal these generational curses you know yeah, how old were you when you stood up to him? Twelve. Until you were twelve years old. Yeah. What do you think gave you the courage to do that? I was tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I was tired. I wasn't, you know, and I was taught not to be a, a, a victim. You know, as the youngest, I was taught to fight. <laughs> yeah. And that is this edition of Coastline. Elaine Brown, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure and an honor. Likewise. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fresnel engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook at WHQR Coastline or send us an email at coastline at whqr.org. You can find this episode on our website, whqr.org, or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.